0: Good evening. It's nice to be home. Tonight's scripture reading will be John chapter 20. John chapter 20 will be starting at verse 19 through the end of the chapter, verse 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thank you, please. Be seated.
1: I'm very happy to be with you this evening. Thank you, Tim, for that reading and Thank you, Lynn, for the beautiful songs that we've been led in tonight. We're always very grateful for these men and the prayers that they lead and the songs they lead and the scripture reading and all the different aspects of worship uh, that they lead us in. We're very grateful. Thank you for that. You and I have been studying about different individuals of the New Testament. Uh, We looked at uh, John, the beloved disciple of the Lord, and then we looked at Peter. And last Sunday night, we looked at Mary, a very... Wonderful study about a wonderful, godly woman from the pages of the New Testament. Tonight, I'd like to continue with a study of Thomas. And I think that uh, there are a variety of ways of looking at Thomas, and as you look at the lives of the apostles, you see a lot of different ones. But yet Thomas is identified with this particular statement that we read in John chapter 20, and he's often called doubting Thomas. But I'd like to um, study a little bit more about Thomas. I feel like there's more to him than this. And that we may even have a misunderstanding about his attitude regarding the question or the statement that he made in verse 25. Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. So let's suspend judgment just a moment about Thomas and let's learn more about him. And then I think by looking at all of the evidence that's available to us, we'll come up with a much better picture of who Thomas really was. He's mentioned nine times in the pages of the Bible. In fact, uh, four references to him are just including him as one that, are, that is in a list of other names of apostles. But then there are other incidences in the New Testament where Thomas is mentioned in a particular way. For example... I didn't want to list all nine, but I thought I'd pick and choose just a few verses here to introduce the thought for us tonight. John chapter 14 is an interesting reference to Thomas. You'll remember the occasion where Jesus is promising uh, to leave them, but yet he will come again. And and they were filled with a great deal of distress, and I'll make mention of this passage in a moment. Verse 5, Thomas said, our Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Both Thomas and Philip were very unique individuals. Then um, you see him mentioned again in Acts chapter 1. And that's one of those list of names. There's the day of Pentecost that's coming. And they had uh, chosen or was they were about to choose a successor for Judas Iscariot. Matthias is going to be chosen. And about verse 13, Acts 1 tells us, identifies the people who were in that upper room at the time. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Well, there are a number of incidents like this in which his name is mentioned. And so he comes up quite often in the pages of the New Testament. But there's a lot of misunderstanding about Thomas, and I think mainly because of the very fact that Thomas was requiring uh, to know more about the Lord uh, rather than just accept and believe him. Uh, This very interesting event, which we've read tonight, surely shows something about Thomas, and I'd like to examine that a little further and study something about the truth, about the doubt that he expressed in John chapter 20. Uh, He's known as being Doubting Thomas for this particular incident, and John chapter 20 has been a very, he's a very famous apostle, and in many respects he is the one that a lot of them go to as a model, I suspect, for their doubt and for their criticism. But I think there's some injustice that's been done to Thomas. Thomas is not doubting in the normal way that many people try to doubt. John 20 and and verse 25. A lot of people today think it's somewhat sophisticated to doubt. Doubt the existence of God, doubt the Christ of God, doubt the Word of God. And so almost as if they have their hands folded or arms folded, they will say, well, you know, I'm just really not convinced about God. And I'm just really not uh, finding God in my life. Uh, Some of this kind of doubt is what I call a comfortable skepticism. In other words, they're not really analyzing the evidence and looking and searching. They just rather have a comfortable doubt whereby no commitment is required. After all, if I can doubt, then I'm really not committing myself to anything. If I can doubt the existence of God, I'm really not committing myself to God. And I can intellectually kind of think, well, I don't know whether God exists or not. I don't know whether the word of God is uh, true or not. I'll just doubt for a while. That's what I call a comfortable skepticism. No commitment required. Matthew chapter 16, I think Jesus came across this very attitude the attitude of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 16 and verse 1. The Pharisees were the strict legalists of the day. You have to follow their opinion. But then the Sadducees were the theological liberals of the day. How could these strict legalists and these theological liberals get together? Well, the only way that they could have any familiarity with each other... Is in their attack against the Christ. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The sign of Jonah and his reference to such had reference to his death, burial, and resurrection. And so he's referring to that, implying that, inferencing that. He says, but now you're very capable of looking at the weather. And you can tell at night whether it's going to be calm or you can tell during the day by the signs of the weather whether it's going to be stormy or calm. But the events which are unfolding before your very eyes, you can't even see them. And I, I see that as a type of skepticism today. You know, it was Bertrand Russell who was the great and very, power, very popular uh, skeptic, the agnostic. Someone asked uh, Russell if he, what could happen or what would have to happen in order for him to believe that God does exist. You see, a skeptic now, an agnostic, is one who is saying, I don't know whether he does exist. I don't know whether he does not exist. I just don't know one way or the other. Though Russell certainly leaned toward atheism. Though he officially would be agnostic. He's leaning toward atheism, trying to say God did not exist. Well, in answer to that particular question, Russell thought a minute, and he said, if you put a bronze banner up in the middle of the sky, and on that is etched the message, God is, and it's permanent, then I'd believe. And as I read that, I thought, you know, if the warmth of the sun won't convince you, and if the storm at night will not convince you, and if the temporary nature of life itself will not convince you, what would a bronze banner up in the sky etched God is? How would that be any different? How would that convince you? You see, there's an element of skepticism today that mirrors the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day. It is a comfortable skepticism. Show us a sign. Yeah, we'd like to see a sign from you to prove this once and for all. Jesus had performed many miracles. Jesus had shown over and over again by verifying his message and who he was by the miracles which he had performed. And yet they sort of fold their arms together and say, give us a sign here, a comfortable skepticism. We see it today in the lives of a lot of people. I'm saying this is not the kind of doubt that Thomas had. It was not a skepticism whereby he was very comfortable to try to say, well, I don't know whether he's really the Christ or not. I'm not going to believe until I see. It was not a skepticism or a doubt that was trying to get rid of any kind of commitment upon his part to live for Christ as a disciple of Christ and apostle of Christ. It was genuine and sincere and honest And he's saying, I want to see. And I don't think that I have any complaint about that. I'll talk about that in just a moment. I think we ought to notice the the fearlessness of his devotion to Christ. And this may uh, be missed if we look at the character and the life of Thomas. In John chapter 11, you have an interesting incident there. Jesus had already been to Jerusalem, and again they had come out and challenged him on particular matters. And he gave us the wonderful story of, uh, in chapter 10 about being the good shepherd. And as he went about teaching them, they were ready to pick up stones and stone him. And so he left Jerusalem and he went on into the other side of the, sea, of the Jordan River, verse 40 of chapter 10, which we know now as Perea. And he was preaching outside of Jerusalem in the province of Perea. And then he goes from there to Bethany. Bethany is sort of a suburb of Jerusalem. But then he learns that Lazarus is dead. And he turns to his disciples and said, Let's go back to Mary and Martha and into that area. And the disciples said to him in verse 8, Rabbi, The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? We just came out of there. And that is a hotbed of rejection back there. Uh, Maybe we ought to think about going back there, whether we should or not. And he's telling them about Lazarus. And uh, uh, he says, now Lazarus is asleep. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And again, the apostles said, well, if he's asleep, it'll be okay. He'll revive. He'll wake up. He says in that regard, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Now, I'm leading up to this 16th verse, which is found in John chapter 11, which gives us more insight into the character and the nature of this particular man, Thomas. So Thomas called the twin said to the fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. And so without any statement of optimism, without any statement of encouragement, uh, Thomas says, well, if he's going to Jerusalem, let's go too. If he's going to die, we might as well go die with him. Now, I believe that if a man saw how that there was hope, and he looked at the situation and there was a great deal of hope there. and Real possibility of success. He might say, yeah, let's go down in there. Let's go there even among the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and all of their hatred. Let's go ahead anyway. But here's a man who recognizes there's no hope. And the other disciples are saying, let's don't go. But yet Thomas is the one who steps up and says, if he goes... Let's go ahead and go with him, even though we might die in the process. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan, and uh, the classic uh, analogy there, Mr. Fearing was one of the characters. It's been a long time since I've read that book. But Mr. Fearing was a kind of pessimistic guy. And it was always looking down on things. He always looked uh, hard on the situation. He was a burden to himself and a burden to other people. Maybe that's the way Thomas was. When Thomas thought, okay, it's all over, there's no hope, let's go anyway. Maybe Thomas was a man who was that way. If that is so, I have greater admiration for him because of the devotion and the fearlessness that Thomas has with regard to the Lord. There's much more to this man than just simply saying, this is doubting Thomas. It certainly wasn't a comfortable doubt that he's giving. It is a sincere consideration to look at all the evidence available. He is devoted. He is fearless. He is dedicated. He's committed. Even in the face of there being no hope, let's go on down there with him. You have some great statements in the Bible about people making commitments to do things, even in the face of great disadvantages. For example, one of the most beautiful would be Ruth, who made a commitment to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Entreat me not to leave thee, she says. Don't try to get me to go away. I'm going to stay with you. It was Elisha who said to Elijah, 2 Kings chapter 2, As long as the Lord liveth, and as long as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee 2 Kings 2 and, 20, uh, 2 and verse 4. Well, here you have a similar statement, which may be one of the strongest statements of commitment that I've read in the pages of the Bible. You have a man who may be a little pessimistic, thinking to himself, there's no hope for us to go down there, but if he goes, I'll go with him. And even if we die, I'll go with the Lord. There's commitment there, and faith, and loyalty, and dedication that we don't always see in others and in ourselves. There's more to Thomas than just his doubt. He does request knowledge and assurance. In John chapter 14, you have this very interesting passage, and I mentioned it just a brief moment ago, but now I'd like to spend a little more time with it. You know, Philip and Thomas, always asking these questions. Peter seems to be the one that just speaks up and kind of blurts out. And sometimes I think he speaks before he thinks, and he just speaks out, and we studied that. But I think here you have an individual, and Philip, who are questioning and offering questions. I'll tell you what, I'm glad they did. Because when Jesus answers their questions, it helps me as a reader of the Scripture. That's the way a question does When somebody asks a question, it's going to help somebody else. Questions are good. They're a good way to study. Especially questions that are on point. These particular questions help us focus on the matter. And just as sure as you ask a question about something, there's probably somebody out there that had the same question in mind that didn't ask it. And you have Thomas asking questions. And Philip. And what are they doing? They're looking for greater knowledge. They're looking for greater assurance. It's a wonderful quality to have. I mean, John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. What he's saying here is I'm leaving and I'm going to the Father. And what he is saying is I'm going to take this blood and I'm going to put it at the mercy seat of heaven to be the payment, the atonement for the sins of mankind. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Even you and I tonight take a great deal of consolation in John chapter 14. That even though Jesus has gone, he says he's coming again. And when he comes again, not to set up some kind of millennial reign here on earth, but when he comes again, he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords, and the judge of all the earth, and will take his own with him to be with him forever and ever. Isn't that a great promise? Thomas doesn't see that promise. What does Thomas say? And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? You see, Thomas is not looking at the promise. Thomas is looking at the going. You got a promise which Jesus is giving, you got a going away that Jesus is telling them about. He didn't see the glass half full, he saw the glass half empty. All he could see was the going away. He couldn't see that wonderful promise that Jesus had given I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to prepare rooms for you. There are going to be plenty of rooms for all. And when I come again, I'm going to take you for myself, and you will be with me forever. What a wonderful promise. But he didn't see that promise. All he could see was the going away. And he asked this very interesting question, and with a mild type of rebuke, Jesus tells him, "Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then, as you continue on in this chapter, you have a question offered by Philip. I think the questioning and the asking of questions and the answers that they receive show a type of heart that wants to know. It is clear he didn't understand what the will of the Lord was in the matter. He's very despondent over the fact that the Lord is leaving, but he wants to know, he wants to learn. It is an inquisitive heart, a heart that asks questions to learn more knowledge and to receive greater assurance in the matter And for that, we ought to be very grateful. You see, there's much more to Thomas than just a doubter. He's a man who wants to learn, and he wants to have reassurance of what he knows. But then I want to spend just a brief moment in chapter 20, which was our lesson text tonight, and analyze a little bit more about Thomas and what went on on that particular occasion. The incident, I think in which Thomas has received such an injustice. In that particular instance, there Thomas was away. He was not with them when the Lord uh, came to the room. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, verse 24, was not with them when Jesus came. So that the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Uh, He must have come back and saw such a bubbling, exciting experience of people. They're just all effervescent over the fact they've seen the Lord. Uh, the door is locked because of fear of the Jews, and then, but that locked doors couldn't keep the glorified body of Christ out of the room, and so Christ comes, and there he's with them, and they talk with him. And, and you see a wonderful blessing that Thomas missed by not being there that Sunday night. We've seen the Lord. And then Thomas makes the statement that so many people remember of him, which I think is so unfortunate But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He's looking for the evidence. He's looking for the matter of Jesus and his resurrected body. Now it could be, and I'm trying to analyze a little bit, the mind of Thomas as best I can from the reading that I have. Maybe Thomas is going through his mind, this is such a hurtful thing for me. I'm not going to believe until I see. Or this would be such a wonderful thing, the resurrected body of the Lord. It would be such an amazing thing. It's just something I'm going to have to see in order to believe. Now we might be somewhat critical of Thomas because he did not believe the testimony of others. The testimony of others is surely justifiable evidence which can be brought forward and these faithful men are saying, we have seen the Lord. But he says, I'm not going to believe that. I'm going to believe it when I see it. And I don't see that that's such a terrible thing because it's not a complacent type of skepticism it's a sincere one it is not a mere intellectual exercise as Bertrand Russell would try to make it but it's a very sincere willing effort to say I want to examine these matters for myself and that's not a sin for there to be some doubt in my life over this matter or that matter is not sinful Plato once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. In fact, that's one of the mottos of uh, philosophy in Plato's statement. But I read that also, as Paul would say to the Corinthians, that they should examine themselves to see whether they be in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. To examine oneself means that there might be some doubt with regard to one's self-examination. And so I look at my own heart and I look at my own life to see if I've been obedient to the will of, and the word of the Lord. And there's certainly nothing wrong in doing that. Whenever I doubt a particular matter, then I look at that matter to look at the evidence and see if it's justified. Then when I follow the word all the way through and I'm convinced of it, then I grow in faith. I see Thomas in this regard in John chapter 20. He says, until I can see it. I'm not going to believe it. And then the occasion comes next week. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, the doors were locked because of the fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, put, your, put out your hand, and place it in my side. And do not disbelieve, but believe." And this is the point that we really ought to remember about Thomas is found in verse 28. And Thomas answered him, "My Lord and my God." He believes. He believes because he's looked at the evidence and there is no way that that particular evidence can be denied. Some people want to deny the evidence. They want to discard the truth. They want to discard the church the truth reveals. They want to do something other than what the Word of God says because they have their comfortable skepticism about them. And they don't continue to pursue that particular matter until they find out what the truth of the matter is. You know, when you and I were young in the faith and we first were baptized into Christ, I know in my mind there were a lot of issues I didn't know about Uh, There are a lot of truths I didn't understand. I understood the fact that I was guilty of sin and I needed to do something about it. In fact, I had known that for some time. And finally, even at a young age, I decided it's time for me to do something here about this matter. And so one evening, Sunday night, though we talked with a preacher and, and uh, I'd studied with the preacher, I studied with my mom and my dad and we decided that this was the thing for me to do and I decided to step out and be baptized into Christ. And I've never regretted that decision. As I went to college, I began to wonder in my mind, did I make the right decision? And I began to think about that and I thought, Did I do this simply because my mom and dad wanted me to do it? Though it was true, they did want me to do it. They wanted me to be baptized. They wanted me to make that commitment. But did I do that just because they wanted that? Or was that done because that was really what needed to be done? So I set out to study everything that I could. I set out to study the inspiration of the Bible. It was an important study for me, and I looked at all of the information that I had at the time, and another big pursuit for me was the existence of God. I I set out to really study the existence of God, and to see, is there a possibility that God does not exist? Is there a possibility some really smart guys got together and wrote the Bible and wrote it all up, and no, they're really smart, and they're really able to write all these things, put them together very well, and pass it off as the Bible. And by evaluating these doubts, these questions, as a young Christian, I soon began to realize that what my mother and father told me was true. And even though I examined myself, and examined what I believed, and looked carefully at the evidence that was available to me, I came away with greater faith than when I went in. I suppose that every one of us do that from time to time, and there's nothing wrong with that. If there is a doubt about this issue or that issue, study that issue out. Go to the Word of God and follow it through. Now simply because you have a doubt about the matter does not mean you just throw up your hands and say, okay, uh, you know, I'm going to desert the fellowship of the church of the Lord. I'm going to desert the matter of prayer. I'm not going to have anything to do with them until I get this worked out and I just very lazily never work it out. That's the wrong approach to handle doubt. The right approach to handle doubt is to stay with the body of Christ and the fellowship of faithful brethren and to study the word of God and follow it through. And when you examine the matter, you will eliminate the doubt And you will grow in faith as faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I see Thomas as doing that. His search for the facts. Unless I touch the nail prints in his hands. Unless I feel the wound in his side. That evidence was available to him. And so he would pursue it out. But then notice the end result. He's down on his knees saying, my Lord and my God. His faith is strengthened. And he becomes a stronger disciple. There had to be a lot of character to the man for Jesus to pick him as one of his apostles. And we see him there on the day of Pentecost. As I read in Acts chapter 1 and verse 13. And I believe that he's there with Christ today. When Jesus gave him the promise in John chapter 14. He says I'm coming to be with you. I'm preparing a room for you. And Thomas being faithful unto death to find himself in the loving arms of a faithful Savior. That's what doubt can do. It can cause us to grow in faith. It can cause us to examine our faith. Tonight you and I have been studying about a man uh, who's a strange man of contrast. Uh, He's an individual who was picked by the Lord, but yet he's searching and he's looking. He's a kind of man that is very devoted to Christ. Christ fearless in his faithfulness to Christ. If he goes down to Jerusalem, we're going down there with him even though we die. And yet he's the same man that would say, you know, unless I see him, I will not believe. We kind of identify with Thomas. I do, and you do. Because sometimes we'll have a doubt here, and we'll have a doubt there. But those doubts can be eliminated with greater, stronger faith, with greater study sometimes, and I've noticed this a lot in my life, there have been questions that would come up and I couldn't get the answer to it. Some questions I had in my mind, I couldn't find the answer to it. Oh, I knew it was in the Bible somewhere. I just couldn't find it. And so I'd put that question on the back burner for a while. And some of those questions were put on the back burner for several years. But then later as I matured and I was able to study and had opportunity to study with others and at the feet of others, those questions were answered. And it was almost like the light going off in my head. Yeah, I see that now. I see the answer to that now. Sometimes it'll be like that for you, that a question will come up in your mind. Put it on the back burner for a while until you're growing and maturing to the point where you can handle the answer and that you can get the answer and understand it. And by then, you'll see how much more faith is found to be in your life. He's a man who seeks and who finds. I'm saying that's what God wants us to be. Men and women who search for the truth and not be afraid of wherever it leads to follow that truth from the pages of the Bible, to think about it properly and apply it to our lives. He's a man that is with the Lord even to this day that he enjoys the blessings which God had promised him in John chapter 14, which I, with confident faith, look forward to the day I can be with the Lord and be with the saved of all ages. I believe that's what you want. I believe a man like Thomas, who wants to look for the evidence and ensure his conviction and knowledge and faith, is an example for us tonight to follow in his footsteps. If you have questions about your faith, let's get together and study about that matter. If you have questions about your life, let's study the matter together. The answer to those questions is going to be found in the Scripture. For whatever it says is going to be right. So whatever the Bible says, that's what we're going to believe. And we're going to find the answers to the questions of our life, and all the doubts will eventually dispel because we're growing in knowledge and growing in faith and Thomas is a man who helps us see that if you've never been obedient to the gospel of Christ you need to repent of sin and obey the gospel tonight by confessing your faith and being baptized into Christ for the remission of sins if you've been unfaithful to the gospel of Christ I urge you to repent of that tonight and make the needed amends in your life and I urge you to do it now to grow stronger every single day so that you can say tomorrow, if there is a tomorrow, I'm going to be a stronger Christian today than I was yesterday. And the day after, if there is a day after, you'll be able to say with faithful dedication of heart and life, I'm going to be a better Christian today than I was yesterday. Is that the case with your life? If not, let's start it now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.